thank you for all coming this evening. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge. I'm the interim director of the Middle East Centre, and I teach international relations in this very building at London School of Economics. Uh, it was with great pleasure that uh, we're allowed to bring to you tonight a talk by Professor Gilles Capel, who's the profession chair of Middle East and Mediterranean Studies at Sciences Po. But simply by saying that, I think, uh, neglects uh, or undermines his reputation. I think he is, without doubt, one of the foremost Arabists and social science working, scientists working on the Middle East. Um, and his books have certainly shaped and guided my education from the Prophet and the Pharaoh in 1985 through the Revenge of God, Allah in the West, and the Roots of Radical Islam. I think uh, The Trail of Political Islam, Jihad, is, uh, is one of my favourite books, and it was, uh, it was given to me by the late Fred Halliday upstairs uh, before his tragic early death, and he said to me as he gave it to me, uh, keep that close to you and you won't go far wrong. So I think we're lucky to have with us uh, uh, Gilles, and if anyone was closely reading The Observer on Sunday, I thought you saw a very uh, respectful and astute write-up of his own work on North African uh, Muslims in France. So we, we're lucky to have a multi-talented and uh, huge figure in Middle East studies with us who's going to speak on the dialectics of the Arab revolutions from 2011 to 2013 for roughly about 50 minutes, which will give us half an hour for debate and discussion afterwards. So please join me to welcome Gilles Capel. Thank you very much, Toby, for this uh, overtly kind introduction. I have, I'm going to have to live with the expectation you raised, and this is going to be the big challenge of the evening. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's uh, always with an immense pleasure that I go back to uh, come back to, to the LSC to uh, perform my yearly duty of uh, a lecture and my capacity as a was, was, what is it exactly? A senior visiting fellow? That's the kind of species in which I'm classified here. And um, the, for those of you who um, had a look at the previous lectures, it's always the same lecture. But the topic changes every year. And uh, fortunately, uh, events unfolding in the Arab world um, sort of contradict the conclusions of the lecture, lecture of the year before. So after three times in a row, it's time for dialectics, right? So hence the dialectics of the Arab Revolution. But as you will see, those dialectics are not really Hegelian because they are dialectics without Aufhebung. Uh, and uh, things do not necessarily go in a process uh, which uh, makes history uh, lead towards uh, the enhancement of uh, humanity. And uh, maybe next year, if I'm still around, <laughs> I'll uh, give another, another lecture on the new phase of those dialectics. Um, what I meant uh, with this um, bizarre title was that if we look back as of uh, February 2014, uh, to uh, the uh, three and a little more than three years that elapsed and have elapsed since uh, December 2010 when uh, uh, a street vendor called Mohammed Bouazizi set himself ablaze 
in a small city of the Tunisian hinterland, uh, Sidi Bouzid, um, then my contention would be that we could uh, single out uh, sort of three successive phases or steps in, uh, in those uh, revolutions. Uh, one that we uh, could, that would mainly um, uh, take place uh, in 2011, uh, that is the sort of the downfall of the Ancien Régime. Well, actually not of all the Ancien Régime, some of them. And we'll see that from year one, we can divide up the, uh, the Arab world scene or stage in three subgroups. Group A, like North Africa, uh, where uh, the North African shore, from which the Ancien Regime uh, leaders and dictators uh, were toppled. Uh, then uh, B, uh, like Bahrain or Bitrul, uh, in uh, Bahrain, Yemen, the Arabian Peninsula, where uh, former uh, dictators or rulers were not toppled or were replaced uh, without um, uh, being uh, killed or having to go into exile, and then uh, C, like Syria uh, or Sham, uh, where um, the man is still in place and where the revolutionary process was hijacked by a denominational um, conflict. So, phase one, the attempt at toppling the ancien regimes succeeds in uh, a part of the, of the Middle East, doesn't succeed uh, in two other parts. Phase two, uh, the, uh, the sort of landslide uh, victory of the Muslim Brothers. Uh, Muslim Brothers um, winning elections, uh, parliamentary elections in Tunisia, in, uh, in Egypt, having a strong hand in, uh, in uh, Palestine with Hamas, uh, being also strong in Yemen, uh, leading uh, the uh, Syrian rebellion step after step. Um, benefiting from the helping hand of uh, Turkey in terms of organization, in terms of, uh, of model, uh, being signific significantly funded by Qatar. Uh, and then this phase two was the sort of the rise of the, of the brotherhood um, boosted by daily propaganda on uh, Al Jazeera uh, uh, television. And then we have a third phase uh, which sort of started in June 2013 uh, which uh, corresponds with uh, the demise of the Brotherhood. Uh, starts with uh, change in Qatar, in the, in the Qatari leadership uh, followed by uh, systematic backpedaling uh, in Qatar's objective. Then we have uh, the ousting of uh, Mohamed Morsi in uh, Egypt uh, with the huge demonstration of June 30th 
and then the, uh, the meeting of the military uh, with uh, some national leaders on July 3rd. Then we have a change uh, in the course of the Syrian rebellion with the use of uh, chemical weapons by the Syrian regime right after General Sisi has uh, uh, had uh, 1,000 Muslim brothers killed in uh, two public squares in Cairo. And a major change in the developments of the Syrian rebellion with um, the uh, regime that uh, was uh, usually buried day after day in, uh, in pundits' words uh, in 2011 and 2012, trying to be sort of uh, revamped suddenly by the, bless, the combined blessing of uh, Russia and, and Iran. And uh, something which had already been in the making since uh, phase one, i.e. the Shia-Sunni divide around the Muslim world, uh, took more and more steam. And then Iran came uh, in the front stage. And uh, the opposition between uh, Iran on the one hand and uh, GCC countries on the other uh, for the control of the Gulf that some on one side call the Persian Gulf and the others on the other side call the Arabian Gulf so out of cowardice I will just call it the Gulf uh, had was um, taking place as a sort of protracted war on the Syrian battlefield Syrian battlefield, which now extends to the, uh, the neighboring Lebanese battlefield also. And uh, the, di the dialectics of the, of the revolutions there again have changed. They are being encompassed uh, in, um, in a conflict which is not only local and regional, but also international. Uh, and which echoes in a number of uh, other areas. I mean, uh, as far as the uh, as the demise of the of the Muslim Brothers is concerned, it went on and on. And uh, Hamas, that had been sort of uh, bought by Qatar, just like uh, Arsenal or the Paris Saint Germain was bought by Qatar earlier on suddenly felt uh, itself, found itself in isolation. Uh, in Tunisia, uh, where the Nahda party had taken the lead after the October 2011 elections, they had to step out of, of government. And Al uh, uh, Jazeera today is not listened to anymore uh, in the Muslim, in the Arab world, in, in Arabic at least, except by Muslim brothers, sympathizers. And uh, we have a whole new system which is unfolding. So I'm going to try to put into perspective those three phases and also to see how they functioned uh, in the three zones which I mentioned earlier on, North Africa, the North African shore on the one hand, the Arabian Peninsula, Zone B, and the Levant, Zone C, and see how those two kind of dialectics uh, merge. Uh, 
Now, when, uh, when we look back into the way uh, revolu the revolutions of the Arab world, whether or not we call them revolutions, actually, is even debatable. The events in the Arab world took shape. Um, the, um, uh, you know, um, we were sort of uh, hostage uh, two, uh, two kinds of uh, preconceptions, two sets of preconceptions. Remember uh, spring 2011, uh, everybody talked about the Arab Spring at the time. Uh, Arab Spring uh, was uh, set uh, um, word that echoed uh, the uh, spring of the people of 1848 in, uh, in Europe uh, with this uh, sort of uh, <coughs> widespread dimension. Uh, it also echoed the, the Prague Spring of 1968, uh, even though both events had actually turned rather sour because uh, in the uh, the end of 1848, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte became uh, president of France and then uh, would become emperor. Uh, and at the, in August 1968, as you know, uh, Russian or Soviet troops invaded uh, Czechoslovakia. But nevertheless, at the time, the, the spring metaphor sort of stemmed of a, a sort of neo-Hegelian uh, man of the street Hegelian uh, Weltanschauung uh, that came like many uh, intellectually uh, transmittable diseases from America uh, and something which I would call the Fukuyamitis or something like that, i.e. that, you know, it's the end of history. Uh, finally, the Arabs are just like us. They have discovered democracy. Forget about bin Laden, forget about jihad, forget about niqab, forget about everything. Uh, they're going to be just like us. Look at what's happening on the, on the streets in Bourguiba Square, in Tahrir Square. You have uh, uh, young boys and girls uh, having uh, with their iPads, their iPods, their iPhones, and their eyes, what have you, and they're just like us, and that's, that's over. Then, uh, less than a year later, no one talked about Arab Springs anymore, but uh, we only heard about the Islamist autumn or the Islamist fall. And uh, then we shifted from the uh, Fukuyamitis to the Huntingtonosis, which is another intellectually transmitted disease coming from America, uh, which is not uh, Hegelian but rather Hobbesian, uh, with civilized wolves, if I may say so. Uh, and uh, no way. I mean, there's nothing to do with the Arabs. I mean, it's all about jihad, bin Laden, uh, Islamism, veil, and what have you. And uh, we don't have to trust them. And this is, uh, this is something that, that remains outside. It's not part and parcel of the movement of history as we would have liked to see it. And then the third phase, which uh, no metaphor has been able to coin as of now, uh, which is the, the demise of the, of the brothers. So let's try not to... Uh, to use what uh, Durkheim uh, would have called in his uh, days the, 
preconceptions or pre-notions in the, the French original, that is to say, not to resort to what he called those kinds of concepts which were coarsely molded, this sort of concept grossièrement formé, that do not uh, help us understand or decipher the complexities or the vagaries of, of reality, but correspond to our uh, uh, pre-constructed doxa, the, the, the opinion of the, of the man on the street, and uh, approach uh, what we see with a system of metaphors that tend to uh, make it look like something we already know, instead of trying to understand what is happening in the, in the depths of the social movements which are unfolding. So, let us uh, go back uh, step by step to the, um, to the first uh, phase. And um, why is it that regimes were toppled in, uh, in North Africa, uh, were not toppled in, uh, or not really toppled in, in the Arabian Peninsula, and then were uh, taken hostage by uh, civil war in Syria. Uh, before we before we ask that, I mean we we may we may ask ourselves the question of how come uh, those uh, revolutions took place, when and why and um, in what under what circumstances. Um, when I uh, I did uh, I underwent. Uh, sort of long journey, a number of journeys in the, in the Arab revolutions from uh, countries from 2011, March 2011 to uh, February 2013, which I, uh, and I published uh, the diary of those revolutions in a volume in French called Passion Arabe. Uh, what was very striking uh, to me when I talked to people in Upper Egypt in uh, in uh, the Tunisian hinterland and in, uh, in Yemen and other places, uh, they would all insist that uh, something had happened to them uh, on the uh, social and uh, economic level, um, you know, in, uh, in 2010, by the end of 2010, that poverty was becoming unbearable. Uh, that uh, prices of foodstuffs had raised and everything. And uh, so uh, there was something. Uh, and when you look back at the French Revolution, for instance, uh, you, there is a consensus of historians now to uh, uh, underline the fact that in uh, 1788, the year before uh, Bastille Day, um, there were major economic problems in France. Uh, there was a severe drought. Uh, the prices of uh, cereals skyrocketed. A number of people had to, to leave uh, the countryside because they just were starving and they fled to the, the faubourg, the, the outskirts of the, of, the, of the big cities and so on and so forth. And they created a sort of... Uh, mass of people who were discontent. Uh, revolutionary ideas existed already. Voltaire and Rousseau and Diderot and others were around, but they, their ideas had not translated into social mobilization. And uh, 
So, due to the fact that those uh, economic and social circumstances change to a large extent, then the system was ripe in France for the building of uh, a revolutionary conflagration. Now, when we look at the Middle East um, and North Africa, uh, if you remember 2010, the summer of 2010, due to climate change, was a major uh, year for um, uh, shortages in, uh, in cereals. The wheat fields in Russia uh, were set ablaze uh, because of uh, hot summers and so on and so forth. And, uh, to us, this did not make a big difference because the, the part of our um, budget which is devoted to buying bread is very, or pasta is very little. It is quite different in Upper Egypt or in Southern or uh, Western uh, Tunisia. And uh, this led to uh, a phenomenon of major discontent, which um, brought a number of people who had started to come to terms with the regimes that they did not really like, but they thought they could make it one way or another. There was a means to make ends meet, and uh, you know they could... Um, maybe uh, have some upward social mobility and so on and so forth, and they would bear the duress of the repression and of the corruption. This, for a significant amount of people, started to be, uh, to be a possibility. And uh, that was translated by a sort of wave of suicides, of public suicides, um, self-immolation by fire, particularly in North Africa, in Tunisia, in uh, in, uh, in Algeria, in, in Morocco, and so on and so forth. That's one thing. This was the, the general setting. Another very important issue is that uh, 2010, 2011 comes something like a decade after uh, September uh, 2001. And September 2001 had benefited tremendously to authoritarian regimes in the um, in the Arab world because, uh, to make a long story short, uh, many people in the West or even many people in the, in the uh, middle classes and upper classes in the Middle East and North Africa thought that Ben Ali was better than Ben Laden, i.e. that an authoritarian regime was better than terrorism, turmoil, and what have you. And that gave a sort of uh, an extra 10 years to uh, those uh, authoritarian regimes. But uh, from the mid-2000s uh, onwards, after the, uh, the failure of al-Qaeda in Iraq <coughs> opposing uh, the uh, American allied invasion, uh, this issue of terrorism was not as important. And um, therefore, uh, a number of people in the West, uh, whether it be in Washington, in the, uh, in the NGO networks like the Open Society Institute and, and other things, in many circles, started to believe that uh, those authoritarian regimes actually were more part of the problem than of the solution. And if, if there was no democratic opening, therefore all opposition would be driven into armed opposition and would become prey for uh, Ben Laden's and his likes. Therefore, 
the, the fate of those regimes uh, was not as bright by the end of the first decade of the 2000s than it had been uh, at first. Now, it is in this setting that the, uh, the Tunisian event took place uh, on the Friday, uh, December 17th to uh, 2010 in Sidi Bouzid. Uh, in Tunisia, as was the case in uh, Egypt uh, particularly, um, and also in, uh, in Libya, there were two things that were combined. You know, you had all those aging dictators who had in common that they dyed their hair tremendously, and uh, Ben Ali uh, went very far into that process because he even married his uh, hairdresser, Leila Ben Ali, the one who dyed his hair. Uh, they, um, they combined uh, authoritarianism, i.e., those people had been shrewd enough to, to take power to make a coup to take power. But now they were aging, and also due to the uh, post-2001 extension, if I may say so, uh, they relied more and more heavily on their security services and less and less on political manipulation. And also they had become tremendously corrupt because the the, the in-laws, the nephews, and what have you were, were running the system. Uh, corruption was was rampant. And I always remember when I was a student at Sciences Po in Paris, way back, I had a friend from Tunisia who uh, made it much better than I did because he became an entrepreneur in his country. And one day we were together in, um, in La Marsa and um, he would uh, tell me, uh, you know, Gilles, um, to be extorted by a cop, i.e. Ben Ali, is hard enough but, you know, extortion by a hairdresser. Can you imagine? I said, I can't feel your pain. And, uh, you know, even the middle classes were fed up with that system. And uh, so there was, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a system that did not work out anymore. Now, on the 17th of December, you have this man who's a street vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, who sets himself ablaze because a female policeman, or a policewoman rather, uh, seizes his scale because he has no license to, no patent to, to sell his vegetables. Uh, and he sets himself ablaze. This is something, you know, that happened in other countries, uh, in Algeria or in other, had happened already in Tunisia, in Morocco, and so on and so forth. But then, due to the peculiar circumstances in Sidi Bouzid, it leads to some uh, phenomenon, incremental phenomenon that will lead to the downfall of the regime and to revolution all over the Arab world, strangely enough. Uh, in Sidi Bouzid, uh, which is a, a small uh, city, um, which is on the one hand uh, farmland with olive groves, and on the other hand, uh, which is uh, a dry land with the people who survive on the miserable diets and who um, have to leave their farms because there is nothing to eat, so the the outskirts of Sidi Bouzid are, uh, are crowded with, uh, with people who fled the, the countryside. Um, so uh, Sidi Bouzid uh, had uh, a huge amount of uh, unemployed people who uh, had uh, degrees, what they call in uh, 
Tunisian dialect uh, coming from the French diplômé chômeur, i.e. Uh, people with degrees but without jobs. Uh, so they had organizations, uh, associations of, um, of diplômé chômeurs who immediately saw the opportunity to use uh, the, uh, the self-immolation by Mohammed Bouazizi and uh, translate it into political language. And they would build a sort of uh, founding and mobilizing myth about Bouazizi's uh, fate. They uh, did not say that he was a street vendor because it would uh, not allow uh, enough people to identify with him, but they said that he had a degree and he could not find a job, and then he was compelled to sell vegetables. That was the sign, uh, a demonstration that you know the, the Ben Ali system was corrupt and uh, did not lead anywhere. And uh, so they sort of build up the myth of uh, a, a young, educated man who was compelled to sell vegetables and who was humiliated by a policewoman who had slapped him. Uh, then there was another type of myth that was created at the second, at the second level. The first one was... Uh, aimed at uh, a constituency which uh, was of a, more of a leftist nature, if you wish, mobilizing around social objectives. The other one aimed more at a conservative constituency, i.e. a man being slapped in public by a woman in a Muslim country. Of course, it's shameful for uh, manly honor, and uh, therefore this sort of widened their, uh, their appeal. Um, on, uh, the event took place on a Friday, and on Saturday, uh, Saturdays in Sidi Bouzid is, is the weekly market, the souk, the sept. The whole region comes to Sidi Bouzid to buy and sell products, and so those groups started riots with the police. The police uh, killed people because they were not able to, to deal socially or politically with riots. They, they just were able to deal with it through repression and sheer repression because you, you had um, uh, a dictator that was not able to think politically anymore. He relied on his secret services, uh, essentially. And then that led to mobilization, strong mobilization. That mobilization then spread into the cities thanks to... Um, rural emigration from the countryside to the outskirts of, uh, of Tunis. And in the cities, you had a movement of merging of different social classes. The, uh, the downtrodden from Sidi Bouzid and from the, the lower strata, together with people like my former friend who did not like to be extorted by a hairdresser, i.e. the middle classes, that would merge against the Ancien Régime. And this merging of different classes, which uh, Marx in his famous book on the uh, uh, 18th of Brumaire of Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, calls a moment of enthusiasm, where different social classes merge in order to oust an Ancien Régime. This was, in a way, a revolution in the process, in the toppling of the Ancien Régime, but then was it a revolution 
uh, when it developed into regime change? Uh, would people who possessed the means of production before the revolution remain the same as the ones uh, who possessed the means of, revolution, of uh, production after revolution or not? And this, we shall see, is quite different when we look at the uh, events in the Arab world and we compare them with uh, the Iranian revolution of 1979, for, for example. Now, those events in, uh, in Tunisia uh, were uh, developed uh, largely or were pushed largely by um, a young urban middle class uh, that uh, was media savvy, uh, that was uh, able to use the internet, social media, and so on, and that's why those events uh, were usually called or nicknamed at the 2.0 revolution. Nevertheless, this um, perception of the revolutions that uh, people saw on TV and so on and so forth was rather superficial. It did not uh, assess significantly uh, the, uh, the movements that had a significant grassroots um, outreach and um, who could... Uh, that could mobilize people, uh, particularly when the second phase would uh, come into being, i.e. Uh, organizing free elections and bringing people to uh, the voting booths, to the polls. Now, that took place in Tunisia, and to a large extent, thanks to the uh, Al Jazeera channel, this was broadcasted all over the Arab world. And in Egypt, uh, the example of the Tunisian uh, youth that uh, was able to topple a dictator was uh, probably what allowed uh, different Egyptian movements or associations that had already, uh, for the last five years, tried to, to mobilize constituencies against Mubarak regime that were harshly repressed, put into prison, tortured, and so on and so forth, what was what allowed them to merge into a movement. And uh, the funny thing was that when Egyptians saw uh, the Tunisian demonstrations on, on TV, they sort of mimicked the, them. And... Uh, one, the, actually, the, uh, this is not, of course, something I said out of chauvinism, but the, the uh, first uh, slogan of the Arab Revolution was in French. Uh, they would uh, chant, dégage, I go away, leave, uh, on, uh, on the streets of um, Bourguiba Street, on Avenue, uh, of, of Tunis. And um, so, you know, the, with the Tunisian slang, digaj, digaj, bin Ali, digaj. And then the Egyptians would listen to that on uh, Al Jazeera. Most of them would not understand because no one speaks French in Egypt except the higher strata. And they would thought that it was a sort of talisman that, you know, that they could use and to topple the, their regime. And, but there is no G in Egypt, so it's only G in, uh, in, uh, in Cairo. And they would say, digeg, digeg means chicken. <laughs> and doesn't work out. So they were compelled to translate it into Arabic and say, Erhal, and then this is how it unfolded. This is half a joke, of course. And um, 
But this is to underline the fact that the, those, uh, there was this sort of snowball effect, which was uh, helped mainly by, uh, by uh, TV channels and first and foremost by Al Jazeera television. Uh, in Egypt, uh, the revolution did not take exactly the same pace because um, uh, in Tunisia, uh, the army and the, the middle class that was represented in the officer corps uh, threw uh, Ben Ali out, put him on a plane to Saudi Arabia, whereas in Egypt, where you had a much stronger military corps, uh, the military uh, put Mubarak aside in order to uh, remain in power as, as a core. Now, this led to a year of uh, uncertainty and uh, attempts by the military to control uh, regime change, uh, which was ultimately unsuccessful. And in both cases, that led to elections uh, in October in uh, Tunisia and then December to February in Egypt. Uh, in Libya, uh, the same process happened except that uh, there needed be a significant uh, foreign intervention, military intervention, British, French, and America leading from the rear, as they said at the time which uh, was uh, a process that had uh, uh, a rather efficient military planning but was largely devoid of political planning. And to some extent, it resembled the Iraqi situation where the army of Saddam Hussein uh, crumbled, where Saddam Hussein was ultimately captured and, and killed. Uh, but then... The political aftermath of the, of the military intervention uh, did not follow suit. So whatever the circumstances, and I have no time to go back, uh, go down to, to details, in the three North African countries, the ancien regimes were toppled. They were toppled also as opposed to the two other zones because whatever happened politically in Tunisia, that would have no consequence on the price of, uh, of oil at the gas station. Uh, and uh, it would have no consequence either on the, uh, on the core issues of the other core issue of the Middle East or the Arab world, i.e. the Arab-Israeli conflict. It was rather marginal in Tunisia, definitely. In Libya also, even though there is oil in Libya, and even in Egypt, which we tended to tend to place at the heart of the Arab world as a neighbor to Israel, but Egypt had been bought out of the conflict largely by, uh, by American funding. So it was not central anymore after the, uh, to the conflict, after the, uh, the peace process. So, therefore, regime change could happen. Toppling of the ancien regimes could happen. In, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, in Zone B, it was different. It was different uh, because uh, <coughs> uh, there we're uh, in the place of the world where 
uh, a lot of, hi- of the hydrocarbons uh, that uh, fuel, if I may say so, the world economy flow out of. And uh, one quarter of the, of the amount of hydrocarbons uh, cross the Hormuz Straits on a daily basis. Uh, and uh, had Bahrain uh, become uh, a Shia country, controlled by its majority Shia population, had it become a staunch ally of Iran, as Iraq had become courtesy of the American neocons, therefore uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, whose uh, oil fields and gas fields were uh, around the island of Bahrain, uh, would have felt totally jeopardized. And uh, therefore, uh, a month after the revolution started in Bahrain, on the 14th of March 2011, a military intervention by uh, GCC forces, first and foremost Saudi Arabia, aborted the revolution in Bahrain. And uh, people in the West or in the liberal middle classes in the Middle East who had... uh, backed revolutions in North Africa looked the other way because they were not uh, favorable to, to the fact that the, uh, the, the balance of the, uh, of the hydrocarbons production in the world would be toppled. In Yemen, um, the revolution was to some extent watered down, largely also because uh, Saudi Arabia feared that the Shia minority, uh, the, 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 the ideological uh, movement uh, of the Houthis uh, that was uh, uh, prevalent in the northern part of Yemen, bordering Saudi Arabia, uh, would make inroads into Saudi territory. And the Houthis were perceived also as boosted by, by Iran and therefore, um, a transition was engineered under uh, Saudi and international uh, control in order to oust um, smoothly uh, President uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh and replace him by his vice president. So, in the Arabian Peninsula, this uh, change was engineered differently due to the, due to the oil issue. And... Um, Major oil and gas producers like Saudi Arabia or uh, Qatar reacted differently to the challenge. Saudi Arabia was outwardly against uh, what happened. They feared that it would uh, create tremendous turmoil, cost them a bundle, and uh, they they, uh, used a lot of of, of the monarch's private money to, uh, to fuel uh, the, the state budget. In March um, 2011, when King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia came back from uh, uh, America, where he had undergone surgery, he pumped $130 billion out of the family's uh, monies to, um, uh, to be used in the state budget to buy social peace by legitimacy and so on and so forth. So they were very hostile to any kind of change. Uh, the same was true for the United Arab Emirates and uh, Sheikh Abdullah, the foreign minister of the EA, uh, UAE, was the last one to visit Mubarak before his downfall, whereas Qatar had a rather different policy. Qatar, from the start, boosted 
the Muslim brothers, considering that they were uh, the uh, outcome of the crisis, that they were the ones who could become the new leaders of the Muslim, of the Arab world, and that they would be the sponsors of this new hegemon, if you wish, that would replace the former uh, Western-leaning leadership. In Zone 3, or Zone C, rather, uh, i.e. Syria, um, democratic movements started against the Assad uh, regime as they had started uh, in other countries. The same uh, slogans were used, the Sha'ab Yurid Iskat al Nizam, the people want the downfall of the regime. And um, it started in earnest. Uh, there were peaceful demonstrations every Friday and so on and so forth. And then uh, due to mounting repression uh, from the regime, uh, rebellion turned into violence, desertions in the army and so on and so forth, defections are in the army. And um, the uh, movement of rebellion, which was originally non-denominational in nature, uh, through uh, the um, statements of the, uh, of the Free Syrian Army, became hijacked more and more by the um, uh, confessional and dominational dimension of Syria. Syria is, uh, is a fragmented country, just like uh, its other Levant neighbors, Lebanon and Iraq, and uh, the war in Lebanon had, the civil war in Lebanon had pitched uh, Christians against Muslims before it pitched Sunnis against Shias, and uh, the wars in Iraq and the last one in the aftermath of the uh, American and Allied invasion had also pitched uh, Shias against Sunnis, Arabs against Kurds, and so on and so forth. And uh, Syria was no different. And uh, on the one hand, you had a coalition of the minorities under the aegis of the Alawis, and on the other hand, uh, an opposition which was overwhelmingly Sunni in character. And there again, within uh, the, uh, the, the turmoils of the, of the Syrian uh, rebellion, the brothers, the Muslim brothers, pushed both by Qatar funding, Qatari funding, and by uh, Turkish help, and Turkey uh, was and still is uh, um, under uh, the control or the aegis of uh, of government or a party, the AKP, which is an an inheritor of of the Muslim Brothers in its Turkish uh, version, Uh, then the rebellion in Syria became more and more... um, um, Islamist and uh, Muslim brother in nature. Then phase two. Phase two uh, starts with elections in Tunisia in uh, October 2011, in Egypt, uh, and uh, in, uh, in Libya and in other countries. And much to the surprise of many, uh, the groups that, or the parties, or the organizations that uh, 
managed to, to get the biggest number of votes are the Muslim brothers. Why is that? Because uh, the brothers uh, benefited from two things. On the one hand, they were the most repressed under the Ancien Régime, so they had a sort of, uh, of uh, uh, legitimacy uh, because they, they were the, the most prominent figures in the opposition. They, they, had, uh, mart- they, were, they were martyred, if you wish, as, as prisoners, as oppositionists, and also they were very well organized. Uh, in some countries like Egypt, for instance, they had become a sort of second state. You had the, the, the state number one, which was the state run by the military that dealt with weapons, with Israel, with, uh, with uh, foreign, foreign affairs, and you had a sort of um, state of below uh, that uh, was run by the brothers, which dealt with welfare, with charities, with education, with uh, food stamps, and so on and so forth. And uh, so they were the ones who were uh, able to provide um, services on a daily basis. Uh, they, they were very well organized, they were disciplined, and they brought people to the voting booths. Strangely enough, in Egypt, and this was not, had not been foreseen by, by many, actually, uh, they were not only the brothers uh, who uh, had a landslide victory at the booths in Egypt, but also the Salafists. The Salafists, uh, until the very last days of, uh, uh, of the Egyptian revolution, had not moved at all in favor of the revolution. On the contrary, uh, they remained, if not faithful to the Ancien Régime, at least neutral. And uh, Salafism in general, following uh, its Saudi inspiration, is not uh, hostile to the powers that be. I mean, they, they are not into politics. They would rather uh, build constituencies at the um, at society, you know, grassroots level, uh, make people have a pious uh, life, uh, grow beards, uh, wear niqabs, and so on and so forth, but resist violent confrontation against, uh, against the state. And um, in Egypt, actually, they were even used by uh, the Egyptian Ancien Regime against the Muslim brothers as Islamists who were not confrontational. Um, they were not interested in going into politics originally. And I, when I was in Egypt in the spring of 2011, I had a number of interviews with leading Salafists who said, no, we are not going to go to the booths. Things change in, uh, in the summer of 2011, largely, or that is at least my assumption, because Saudi Arabia was not pleased at the prospect of having uh, Muslim brothers who they see as their main competitors in the field of Sunni Islam as, uh, as the only ones winning in Egypt. And they therefore, they, they push the Salafists in order to, uh, to be part and parcel of the, of, of the winning group. So phase two, you have this, those majorities of Nahda, i.e. Muslim brothers uh, of different brands in Egypt, Libya, balanced uh, majority, but Muslim brothers having the lead. Egypt, in Yemen also, the brothers uh, 
being strong, and within the Syrian revolution also the brothers leading. In Palestine, Hamas uh, looking like it was taking over, and uh, Hamas that had until then been largely uh, uh, in alliance with, uh, with Iran, even though it's, uh, it's a Sunni uh, party, leaned increasingly towards uh, Qatar, and even the, the Emir of Qatar even paid a visit to, uh, uh, to the Gaza Strip, of course, with the blessing of the Israelis, and sort of, as I said, bought back Qatar from the, from the Iranians. All this took place uh, under the, the aegis of the Qataris, who not only uh, boosted the brothers on Al Jazeera and, uh, and funded them tremendously, but who also convened uh, numerous meetings in Doha, where they would have Ranoushi uh, uh, from Tunisia, uh, whoever from Egypt, uh, from uh, Turkey, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, so that people would, would, um, would come together, and they would also have Arab nationalists, who were their former enemies, who were tipped, so that they would work together in a sort of uh, alliance between Islamists and nationalists with Islamists, the, uh, the leading power. And Turkey playing a very strong role. So this was phase two, uh, something which took place both in, um, in the countries where uh, regimes had been uh, toppled, within the, the Syrian rebellion in, and in Yemen. But simultaneously, there was a mounting tension uh, during phase two between Shias and Sunnis. Bahrain had started the, uh, the events, and I remembered I was in, uh, in, um, in Qatar, and I did a long interview with Sheikh Youssef al-Qardawi, uh, to whom I said uh, in a rather flattering manner, uh, so... Uh, Fadilat al-Sheikh, you started everything, didn't you? He said, yes, I did. Uh, and, uh, you know, I asked, uh, I made a fatwa on Al Jazeera so that Qazafi would be killed. I told uh, Mubarak he had to leave. And, uh, you know, I was there in the five revolutions. I said five, well, let's say uh, Tunisia, uh, Libya, Egypt, um, Yemen, Syria, well, you're missing one. What about Bahrain? Oh, this is not a solar thawra. This is not a revolution. This is ihtigayet, protest. And, uh, you know, it's not a revolution because it was something that was boosted by the Iranians and they want, and uh, Bahrain is an Arab country and they want Bahrain to become Persian and it's not a revolution at all, so on and so forth. So, therefore, this anti um, Iranian and this anti-Shia uh, dimension became very strong already during phase two. Started with Bahrain, uh, significant also in the in the watering down of the Yemeni revolution, and first and foremost becoming the big fault line in Syria, in Syria where Muslim brothers and Salafists started to conceive the war as a jihad of Sunnis against heretics, against Rafida, Shias, or Alawites, uh, Alawites and, and what have you. And 
So while in phase two you had this uh, overwhelming uh, victory of the brothers with President Morsi elected in Egypt in June of 2012 by a small margin, but elected nevertheless, uh, then you had the fault line, the Shia-Sunni uh, fault line that was becoming more and more significant. Now, one thing about uh, why the brothers uh, were prevalent during phase two, not only because they had their own constituency, i.e., as I mentioned earlier on, they, they had a sort of hero, martyr image, uh, they had discipline, they provided services, but <coughs> they also benefited from uh, the fact that uh, a significant amount of the middle classes, even though they were not Islamist, were fed up with the military regime. Something that had happened in Turkey, even before the Arab revolutions, where a number of uh, Turkish secularists were so pissed with the sort of secularist fascist generals that they would rather vote for AKP because it was perceived as part and parcel of civil society, right? And um, in Tunisia and in Egypt, even more, this also happens. And my estimate is that Morsi got probably one-third of his votes in June from people who were not at all Islamists and uh, who voted not for Morsi but against General Shafiq who was uh, the last, his, his opponent on the second round, and who was uh, Mubarak's last prime minister. Now, phase three. Uh, phase three uh, sees this, uh, which, as I mentioned, starts in uh, late 2013, uh, late spring 2013, June, well, early, early summer. Uh, sees something which is really a s total uh, change of, uh, of um, situation of things, i.e. the demise of the, brother, the other brothers. The brothers thought they were reigning supreme. Qatar was the center of the world and the big hegemon of the, of the Arab world. And I, I remembered I did uh, some interviews with Wadda Khanfar, uh, a Muslim brother by uh, origin and by ideology who had been for eight years the director general of Al Jazeera and who explained to me what was his vision of the, of the Arab world, what he called the Orient, the Shark, which would now escape uh, the sort of flee from the yoke of the colonial uh, West uh, that would become a center of the, of the world power system in its own capacity, uh, and that would be ruled by an identity uh, that was essentially Muslim brother in nature. And I heard, that explain, I heard him explain that to me in Qatar, and then I met him in Istanbul at a meeting where he said the same thing in front of Turks, which was something I, had not, I was not used to listen to in the in the, um, in the mouth of an Arab, and he addressed the Turkish constituency of uh, Erdogan sympathizers and uh, said to them, you know, I've always looked at Istanbul as my capital city, which was to Arabs uh, something strange, I mean, said by a Palestinian. 
And he said, even though I'm an Arab, my two grandfathers were martyred under Turkish uniform. Well, everybody clapped. And uh, so something where he was trying to mold a, a new Middle East that was uh, that sort of overcame the divisions between Arabs and Turks and what have you and was Muslim brother in nature regardless of origins, languages and so on and so forth. Now, what happened and how come uh, uh, it did not work out for the brothers? Um, for a number of reasons and this is not yet entirely clear because it's a process in the making, it's history in the making. One of them was that um, Qatar was, uh, had tremendously overstretched and they were caught in a sort of hubris. Uh, Qatar has uh, 200,000 uh, citizens, I mean people who carry Qatari passports, which is not much. Not all of them uh, work on a daily basis uh, from dawn to, uh, to dusk. And um, even if you're very rich, it is complicated to uh, challenge uh, the whole world uh, with such as when you're such a small country. Uh, and in Qatar had managed to make his, uh, its way because this sort of uh, reconciled people. They, uh, they, they bridged gaps, they organized uh, uh, peace conferences between Palestinians, between Lebanese, between what have you. They had good relations with everybody. And suddenly, when they took sides with the brothers, they immediately antagonized a number of very powerful uh, powers. In their immediate environment, they antagonized Saudi Arabia because uh, the Muslim brothers in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Palestine, where have you, on which the Qataris counted, uh, were, in their view, a sort of human resource that could balance the thousands of Salafi preachers that were produced uh, on a yearly basis by Saudi Arabia, something, of course, that antagonized the Saudis very strongly. Also, <coughs> in order to counterbalance uh, Saudi influence and to sort of uh, keep at bay from Saudi appetite, uh, the Qataris have traditionally played the Iranian cards. Now, uh, with their funding of the uh, Syrian rebellion, they also antagonized significantly the Iranians. So they were caught between two very strong powers, that, uh, between the Saudi hammer and the uh, Iranian anvil, if you wish, and it, was, it became extremely difficult for them. They also started to antagonize world powers uh, to which they were uh, friendly. Uh, in France, for instance, they bought uh, soccer TV rights uh, and uh, bought uh, football clubs like they did in Britain. But then uh, in France, uh, we have a religion which is French cinema, and uh, the French movie industry uh, derives, is funded mainly by, by soccer rights, t soccer TV rights. Therefore, they antagonized a very significant element of the, of the French uh, economy and French capitalism, even though they, they, they were at the time very close to French, former French president Nicolas Sarkozy. So there was a sort of strong Qatar bashing campaign in France. And, uh, you know, their sort of uh, 
their uh, lenient and ecumenical image started to be shattered. The same thing happened with the, the World Cup, the football, the soccer World Cup, where not only uh, did they manage, by whatever reason, to have, a, to have uh, the FIFA people vote for them, but they also tried, or it's not yet for sure now, but they, uh, they, uh, they were on, a, on their way to uh, have uh, the World Cup take place during the winter season. Now, if you do that during the winter season, you antagonize the whole soccer system of Britain, of Germany, of Italy, and then you face very, very powerful enemies. Uh, well, everybody knew there, there, there were slaves uh, working in construction in Qatar and in other GCC countries, but no one gave a damn about it. Now... Every uh, in the British press, it's uh, very blatant. Every uh, every other week, you have on the, in the front page in one of the British dailies or in other countries' dailies files uh, about uh, mistreatments of uh, people from India, from Sri Lanka, in Qatar. Uh, human rights which are not respected. People dying, buying, building stadiums, and so on and so forth. And so. This was something that was clearly that started clearly to create problems for them. And within the Qatari establishment, there were fears that this sort of uh, hubris led to a crash, to a collision, to the breaking of the country. And that led to the fact that within Qatar there was um, a succession that did not. Uh, keep in power the over-powerful Prime Minister Hamid bin Jassim, who was the key architect of this policy, of this uh, Muslim Brother policy, but that ousted him completely and led to the fact that uh, Crown Prince Tamim uh, managed to, to, seize, uh, the, uh, to seize power entirely and marginalize Hamid bin Jassim. And since then, there's been uh, significant backpedaling and uh, Qatari interests, I mean, um, per se, have uh, overcome uh, the financing of the Muslim Brother Revolution everywhere for fear that the, the Qatari state would not resist this, uh, this tidal wave. In Egypt, uh, there was another issue. Not only was uh, the... Uh, Egyptian or Tunisian performance in government not very good, but also uh, the brothers, and I will just concentrate on the Egyptian case, uh, antagonized a lot of their constituencies. Uh, because of their authoritarian leanings, they antagonized the, say, the third of the votes that had gone to Morsi because they were against Shafi. So they lost the majority. And also, because they were such a closely knit group, uh, it, was, it became um, perceived by a number of people in Egypt that they could, if they were not brothers, uh, card-carrying, if I may say so, brothers, they could not have access, I'm through, they, were, they could not have access to the state system anymore. They could not bribe anyone, they, could not, uh, they would be excluded. And this led to a sort of mounting confrontation which finally uh, turned out as the massive demonstration on June 30th, followed by uh, the military takeover and the ousting of the brothers. A couple of things to conclude. 
which um, shows us has, how those dialectics functioned. Uh, after Ramadan in August of 2013, uh, General Sisi had uh, the army uh, fire at uh, brothers demonstrating or brothers sit-ins in, in, in Cairo. Approximately 1,000 people died. Uh, President Bashar al-Assad of Syria sent his congratulations to General Sisi and said that, you know, I had told you those Muslim brothers are terrorists. And the week after, uh, you had Bashar al-Assad using uh, chemical weapons to kill a little more 1,500 people in the Ghouta, in the eastern uh, outskirts of, uh, of Damascus. And then you had this big change suddenly. When uh, the, uh, France, Britain, America said that Bashar al-Assad was an enemy of mankind, that they would intervene, and then the, the France started to, to crumble. Uh, Sergei Lavrov moved a pawn on the chessboard. Uh, Syria agreed to uh, destroy his, its chemical weapons arsenal under the supervision of Russia, which was both uh, a judge and a lawyer in that, uh, in that case. And uh, that led to the, the fact that the Western backing of the Syrian revolution started to, uh, uh, to melt down. While uh, in the Syrian revolution, something had happened which probably was comparable uh, to what had happened in, in Algeria in the 1990s, i.e. that uh, thanks to uh, uh, the action of uh, Syrian intelligence, uh, as had been the case in Chechnya or also in Algeria, jihad was inoculated into the revolution so it would explode, it would disintegrate. So remember the armed Islamic group in the, uh, in the uh, Algerian civil war uh, that uh, were so horrendous that people, even though when they were against them, the military turned against them. And now we have a situation where the brothers have been marginalized uh, in all the countries which I, that I mentioned, where military regimes are back in countries like uh, Egypt, for instance, and where the, uh, the Syrian revolution is now perceived in a way which is completely different from, from before. Not only because Bashar al-Assad and his regime seem far more powerful than they were perceived a year before, but also because in the West now, a lot of people live in the fear of jihadists uh, leaving from uh, Leicester, Aubervilliers, or uh, München, or wherever, to Syria, coming back and uh, starting a sort of al-Qaeda uh, terror campaign again inside, inside of Europe. So uh, we're seeing a sort of Arab revolutions in reverse, in a way, uh, with consequences uh, that, uh, that might unfold on domestic policies of European countries, issues of refugees, and so on and so forth. And to, to an extent, the, uh, our conception of, the, of those revolutions are, are now totally blurred by the recent developments. Uh, add to that that uh, the traditional alliances of the West, uh, including with Saudi Arabia, 
are trying to change. They are being challenged because uh, right after uh, the, the Syrian regime seemed to be slightly reinforced, then uh, negotiations were opened uh, with the Iranians, uh, who, that op- who opened the negotiations because they felt that they were in a situation of <coughs> relative strength uh, in the uh, uh, Russian um, Shiite front as opposed to the uh, Salafi Sunni front. And this is where we are now, I believe. This is where we are now, and... Uh, um, the situation for the future is quite uh, unpredictable. Um, it, you know, the categories which we, we used uh, originally to, to, to try to decipher those revolutions, i.e., uh, whether it was uh, the Arab Spring, the end of history uh, motto, or uh, the Islamist autumn, the clash of civilizations, has led into something quite different, which is a war inside of Islam, a sort of fitna, a war for Muslim minds, if I may say so, which is pitting Sunnis against Shias. And uh, this is this fault line again, which is now prevalent. And uh, one question which we may ask ourselves is to what extent the Arab-Israeli conflict, which was one of the keys to decipher uh, the issue in the Middle East together with the oil, uh, um, the oil problem, uh, whether or not the Israeli-Arab uh, conflict is still central to our analysis of the Middle East, or uh, it's the Shia-Sunni uh, fault line which is becoming at least temporarily prevalent. And with this uh, question, I will leave you and turn to... Uh, Excellent. Do you want to take questions from there, or do you want to... Take- Right. Thank you. We we have some time left for questions. So if you want to stick your hand up, say who you are, and then ask your question, that would be great. You've stunned the audience into silence. Yes, sir. Do you want to bring the microphone? From the beginning, I had a sort of mechanical interpretation for spring not as a season but as a mechanical spring as a what a mechanical spring oh yeah mm. and that spring was released by removal of Saddam Hussein and uh, this kind of uh, dialectical analysis which is based on the Could we bring it towards a question please? Thanks. Yes, uh, uh, my question is that um, we cannot uh, interpret, we cannot analyze what happened in um, Arab wars or in Middle East according to um, dialectical Okay, we've got that point. Can we have a question? Is that it? No no dialectics. No. My my metaphor is for spring is not 
a season. Okay, that's great. Right. We have that. Four Thank you. Years. All right. Thank you. Can we have a, another? Yes, you over here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the lecture. I'm just curious. I, I Your mic's not on again. Is that working yeah, now? That's yeah, that's better. Thank you for the, the lecture. But I'm just curious to see where Jordan is among all of these Arab Spring. Like, where does Jordan stand? Jordan? Yes. So we, Thank you. The Spring Dialectics in Jordan. Another question? Yes, sir. You. Okay. You quoted the Shia-Sunni split. Is there not also a major split between the secular view of the state and the caliphate or Islamist view of the state. I'm, I can recall that Erdogan went to Cairo, I think in autumn 2012 or, or maybe 11, and he gave a speech in favor of, of the secular state, even though obviously Erdogan has um, a very Islamist tinge to that. But I think that's important also in the, in the early stages of the Syrian conflict and perhaps also in um, Tunisia. Excellent. So we have the spring sure. or dialectics, their use, Jordan and where it's going, and then the secular versus the Islamist view of the state. Yeah, well, the, um, I'll start uh, in, in reverse. Um, whether, I mean... Shia versus Sunni is only relevant as a fault line as much as political actors are able to mobilize this uh, divide, if you know, to, uh, to have strong constituencies pitted against, pitted against each other. Because if you look back in the... 15th, uh, 15th centuries of history of Islam, there has always been Sunni-Shia divides. At times, they were menial. I mean, they did not carry any significant uh, cleavages that would not bring people into uh, uh, killing, take, um, make people kill, kill each other. At some other times, due to some circumstances, they would. Um, for the time being, um, in, in a country like uh, Syria, it is prevalent. But you're right, because uh, when you say that it's not the only cleavage, uh, and the sort of secularist versus Islamist is also present, does not have the same magnitude. But if you look at Egypt, for instance, definitely... Uh, what was at stake um, in the mobilization against uh, Morsi in, um, in June 2013 uh, was uh, a reaction of people who were anti-Islamists. And uh, the same was true also in Tunisia, where uh, the debate on the constitution uh, and the, uh, the ousting, the pressure to oust a Nahda was engineered by forces which define themselves as secularists, not to say that they are not Muslims, but they, 
they clearly uh, did not share the uh, Sharia uh, worldview, if you wish. So this is a subsystem. But as of now, the, the main fault line, because this is where uh, the biggest war is taking place, that is Syria, and this is where the biggest uh, economic interests are at stake, i.e. in the Gulf, are what is called Shia versus Sunni or Iranian versus uh, Arabs or some Arabs because other Arabs are, are Shia and uh, Iraq is predominantly Shia and allied with Iran uh, on that, uh, in that matter. So whether or not this will last forever is not for sure. And this is one thing which is at stake in the, in the negotiations uh, between uh, Iran and, uh, and the West on the nuclear issue. Uh, can we foresee that uh, President Rouhani and his team are leaning closer to a sort of... Uh, less uh, radical Islamist stance if they are being reintegrated into the international community after a positive outcome of the, of the negotiations. I mean, this is one of the hypotheses which is on the table, which of course not everybody shares. And, uh, you know, the, the debate on that issue is, is rampant in the, in the U.S. now is uh, uh, with the um, uh, the pro-Israeli uh, uh, lobby uh, considering that sanctions against Iran are the only way out, whereas some other forces consider that you have to, uh, to boost the negotiation process in order to strengthen the hand of the less Islamists within the Iranian establishment, right? But as of now, uh, this... Uh, if I may say so, uh, this contradiction is secondary to the Shia-Sunni contradiction because this is the one which is bringing in uh, the biggest uh, uh, amount of money, of weapons. This is where people are, are dying and so on and so forth. But this is evolving all the time. Look, for instance, at the... Uh, at the issue of jihad in Syria, where uh, from what we, we read, and it's of, co of course very difficult to, to, to confirm, but uh, even in Saudi Arabia now, there is a lot of debate on, uh, on Syrian jihad. Uh, some in Saudi government circles are being uh, afraid at the fact that Syria is turning like Afghanistan where they originally uh, funded the jihadists with the blessing of the, of the CIA, until jihadists turned against uh, Saudi Arabia, right? And um, in Syria, you now have a number of uh, radical jihadi groups who attack Saudi Arabia and say that, you know, they worship uh, the barrel and the dollar instead of worshiping Allah and so on and so forth. Things which, you know, remind us of what happened in the early 2000s with uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula uh, 
uh, engineering bombings and uh, turmoil in Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia between 2003 and 2006. So, to what extent is this uh, fault line sustainable uh, in terms of the policy of the different actors is a question mark. And if, uh, if I have another lecture next year, maybe uh, we shall see that where we were this year will have been overcome by different uh, contradictions. Uh, in terms of Jordan, uh, well, Jordan, I, I believe, is um, uh, the Jordan, Jordan domestic situation is um, pales uh, in in front of the of the regional issues, and uh, the plight of Jordan now is that they have to deal with a huge number of Syrian refugees, uh, and that the um, the the monarchy is very worried by the fact that uh, turmoil amongst those refugees might um, spill over into Jordanian society. And therefore, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, the, the Jordanian government benefits from uh, a rather strong commitment from, uh, from the West so that... Uh, Nothing, let's say, not much changes in the in the kingdom. So, uh, uh, a number of countries like Jordan have sort of managed to uh, to remain marginal to uh, the uh, the Arab revolutions. I mean, uh, not to mention Iraq, which is uh, into its own problems. But when you think of Jordan, you think of uh, Algeria and Morocco, for instance. It looks like. <coughs> For some reasons, they were not taken into the turmoil. Uh, uh, last year, uh, I gave a series of lectures in Morocco, and the year before, Moroccans were sort of, you know, anxious to get into the, uh, the Arab revolutions. They, they sort of feared they were shameful that they had, didn't have their revolutions. A year later, uh, there, was a, there were sites of relief that Morocco had not turned like Libya, like Egypt, like Syria, and so on and so forth. So there is a sort of um, caution now uh, amongst uh, people who would have liked to, uh, to go down and to, to, to follow the, the revolutionary line because of the, um, of the, of the backlash that, uh, that followed. Uh, in terms of um, spring, I'm not sure I fully understood the, the question, but the, um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier on, um, I believe that you know those uh, seasonal metaphors um, are not really apt at uh, understanding or deciphering the phenomena that we're trying to analyze, that uh, we should uh, use different tools of analysis, which are the the ones, if you were, as I mentioned, uh, facetiously or so, I hoped in the beginning it was dialectics without Aufhebung, so it was not uh, leading to uh, progress. It was not a mechanical uh, Hegelian uh, post-Fukuyama, if you wish, dialectic system. On the, uh, on the other hand, it was, uh, it was a system where contradictions were taking place year after year and were building an image uh, that I was trying to, uh, to come, come up with. We have to draw a, a, an end to this meeting in a minute, but I'll take one final round of questions. Yes, you, ma'am. 
Um, as a fiercely uh, secular Arab and Lebanese, I obviously do not agree with the, the Muslim Brotherhood. As a fiercely secular Arab and Lebanese, of course, I do not agree with the Muslim Brotherhood. But do you think it's a bit premature to talk about their demise, especially in the way that they're being treated today, so that being clamped down, especially in, in Egypt, is the most obvious example, so that they would probably be strengthened, if only underground? Well, but if you leave that question to sum up on, and just also where you think Gattery foreign policy is going as well, because it was the Brotherhood and Gatter which were the kind of centre of your okay. talk. Uh, as far as Qatar is concerned, I believe that uh, what is now prevalent in Qatar is their uh, state interests. And, um, you know, the, the days of uh, Hamid bin Jassim, I believe, are over it became too dangerous. And, um, you know, the, the future of uh, the small uh, GCC states is, uh, is open to questions. I mean, they can only survive if there is a balance of power in the region. Uh, if Qatar uh, is, in a, is a sort of hubris that antagonizes both Saudi Arabia and Iran, it's not sure that we would, that we shall still have a Qatar in 15 days, uh, 15 years, uh, days, uh, 15 days, uh, 15 years. Unconscious. Uh, now, as far as the demise of the brothers, you're right because um, you know you cannot wipe out movements, particularly in Egypt, that uh, have uh, been used to. Uh, confront uh, repression for eight decades and uh, Egypt now, I mean Sinai is off limits clearly and uh, when you look at the map of uh, unrest in Egypt uh, in Kardaha in uh, the Middle Valley it's precisely the map where you had unrest in the 1990s under Mubarak and uh, where the, the brothers have strong constituencies so as of now, because, uh, because of the amount of repression in Egypt, they, they cannot participate in the, uh, in the political process, but uh, uh, we do not really see uh, anything that the, the present government and the, uh, of Egypt is, uh, is delivering in order to create a political alternative in Egypt. For the time being, the the benefit for the 13, uh, from the $13 billion which are uh, pumped into the Egyptian economy, courtesy of Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, and, um, and, and the UAE. Um, to what extent uh, is that sufficient to build a legitimacy for the present Egyptian political system is, of course, very questionable. Uh, and uh, now, uh, what is very striking in Egypt is that, uh, you know, people who were uh, liberals and uh, who were like, uh, you seem to be very uh, um, keen on human rights and, and so on and so forth, were so panic-stricken uh, under uh, Morsi, were so fearful that you know they would uh, they would back everything 
that would be done so that the brothers would not come back. Uh, maybe it's, uh, it's a short-sighted uh, policy, maybe it's not moral but, uh, from your point of view, but I, I believe that as of now it is still a rather strong feeling in Egypt. Whether or not it will last, uh, that is not sure at all. And uh, depending on what the, uh, the, the CC government will be able or not to deliver. That's a great uh, line to end. I think we thank uh, Professor Capel for a fascinating, incredibly ambitious and wide-ranging talk. And we look forward to his next book. He told me coming over that Fitna uh, uh, was the, the, the War for Muslim Minds. Its title came to him when he was lecturing in this very room. So we assume the next book will also be, the title of the next book will be derived from uh, the, the magic and the insight that, uh, that was shared in the Hong Kong theatre tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs>